but not 10, 13 through 16. We're moving on. Mark 10 and 17 is actually where we'll be starting. Repetitions are important when you read God's Word. Always look for repetitions in your daily Bible readings. Pay attention to them as you study them. God is When God repeats something, it is always for a purpose. Sometimes, though, repetitions span more than one passage or even one specific book. For example, in Psalm 24, or sorry, 27 and 4, David said he desired one thing, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. In Luke 10.42, Jesus told Martha, while she had worried over many things, one thing was necessary. I was sitting at his feet and Mary had chosen it. In John 9.25, a blind man was asked who had healed him and was asking all kinds of questions about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. And, and he replied, well, he's a sinner. I don't know. But one thing I know. I once was blind, but now I see. Philippians 3, 13-14, the Apostle Paul said he did one thing. He forgot the past and he reached toward what lies ahead, pressing on and his call in Christ Jesus. The passage we're looking at today, Jesus told a man he lacked one thing. What was the one thing? Why did it matter? What does it mean for us today? Well, let's find out together. Mark 10, verse 17 should be page 771 in the Pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him, knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do so that I may inherit eternal life? But Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess. Give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. But he was deeply dismayed by these words. And he went away grieving. But he was one who owned much property. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We thank you for your grace and your goodness, for your love and kindness. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather and to study your word. Thank you for the words of Jesus. Would guide us. Let us hear his voice today, Lord. Father, I'm going to preach, but these are Jesus' words, and that's what we need to hear today. Make it clear that we're hearing from you. Father, we're all going to have a variety of responses to this message today. And Lord, we don't want anybody to respond because I'm clever in the way I talk. Because I I put forth such great arguments that they can't resist it. But neither do we want people to resist the words and reject the words because they came from me. 
Father, any response today that we have to to take and to do the word, we want to do it because it's your word. Because it is what our Lord Jesus Christ has said. And if someone, if we reject it today, we want to be clear. They're rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus and what he has said. My words are empty. My words are powerless. Your words are not. So let Holy Spirit come today. Let him give me unction. I would speak your word with boldness and clarity. My speech and preaching would not be with the enticing words of man's wisdom. But it would be in demonstration of your spirit and your power. So people's faith would stand not in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Let Holy Spirit come today and open our ears. That we would hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. Let Holy Spirit come and plow up our hearts. So the good seed of the word would sink deep down and bring forth good fruit. That Holy Spirit come and begin even now showing us what our one thing we lack is. And by the end of the service, let us know. Bring us to the place where we would respond. We'd have to respond because of the work that you're doing in our lives. Have your way in all things, O Lord. Be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So this story is repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Again, repetition. For the Holy Spirit to inspire three different authors to write it down can only mean the lesson is inclu- the lesson included is, is important and we have we can't miss them. So wherever Jesus went, people came to him and they asked him questions. Now, the man who comes to Jesus today is going to test in a lot of ways what we saw last week. That the kingdom of God belongs to to children. And in order to to receive the kingdom, we have to become like children. Which means we have to receive it as a gift given. Without any sense of entitlement, right, or merit. Now, the man coming to Jesus is used to receiving everything he receives. As a matter of entitlement, right, and merit. If you look at verse 22, it says he is one who owns much property. Luke 18 and 18 tells us he was a a ruler. So what this means is he is a wealthy, affluent, important member of the community. As you read the story and the way he talks, we'll see that he, he seems to be... Very self-sufficient. He's used to being able to to not just get what he wants, but to be able to do what he wants. If he determines he wants something, he's able to do what needs to be done to get it. But now he comes to Jesus with a question. Look at verse 17. And he was setting out on a journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him. And asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, much about this Verse is important. First, notice he runs. It doesn't speak much to us, but for a Jewish man to run was considered undignified. Especially a wealthy, influential Jewish man would never run in public. He felt an urgency about what he was going to do. Such an urgency that that normal propriety did not matter. And then he, he knelt before Jesus. Again, for a man of his wealth and stature to kneel before someone, anyone, 
was a sign of tremendous respect. People knelt before him. He wasn't the kind of person who knelt before others. And then he calls Jesus good teacher. Now the significance of him calling Jesus good can be easily overlooked in our day because we use good to describe someone or something quite often. She makes a good burger. He is a good teacher. Well, not so in Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, only God was good. Now people, they could reflect a measure of God's goodness because they were made in God's image. But only God was truly and completely good. And so they really wouldn't call someone good. They might teach well, but not a good teacher. Right? They, they wouldn't put it that way. But he does. And then, lastly, the question. This is where it's all starting to get to us. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He's asking the right question. He's aware of the kingdom of God. He's aware Jesus is significant. He, he might even be aware that there's a, there's a world to come. And, and, and whatever it is, he wants to be a part of it. He wants to be a part of God's kingdom. He, he wants to be a part of whatever Jesus is starting. He wants to be a part of the world to come, however that works out. But the exact wording is significant. What shall I do? He expected Jesus to tell him some great deed he could go perform. And then he would seal the deal with God. What did he need to do to earn his way to the kingdom of God. What did he need to do to, to earn eternal life? Now from his point of view. He certainly has the means and the capabilities. To do whatever great feat Jesus might tell him to do. So what does Jesus say? We'll look at verse 18. But Jesus said to him. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now. Calling Jesus good teacher without knowing and believing Jesus was indeed God in the flesh was an extravagant act at best and just plain kissing up at worst. Jesus' response to the man is meant to make him consider his words more carefully. If Jesus was not God, it was wildly inappropriate to call him good. However, if Jesus is God in the flesh, then he is not just an ordinary teacher. Furthermore, if Jesus is God, his words carry more weight than any other person this young man has ever talked to before. He had better listen carefully to Jesus' words. He had better Count the cost of his obedience or disobedience to whatever it is Jesus says. How he answers the question. So look at verse 18. But Jesus said to him, why? Or I'm sorry, verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Do not honor your father and your mother. Jesus really doesn't... Give the guy an opportunity to think, to answer, before he, he switches to some basic commands of the law. If God alone is good, the guy's going to have to examine his life as it relates to goodness as well. If 
God alone was truly good, he, he may have to rethink how he's going to answer what Jesus says in verse 19. Now, nothing Jesus said in verse 19 would have been new or shocking. In fact, it, it was such a basic answer to the question. You might even say, you might almost say it was boring. It was as basic an answer as if someone asks pro bodybuilder, how do you how do you lose weight and get in shape? And they say diet and exercise. Wow. That's a real yawn answer there, friend. Thanks for that revelation. That's Jesus' answer. It is that basic. It is just a bread and butter answer for Jewish people. Look at verse 20. And he said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Now the man affirms he had kept all these commandments from his youth. At the age of 13, Jewish males went through a a ritual uh, where they sort of became men. They came of age. And when this happened, they assumed all responsibility for their own keeping of God's law. And this would have been part of what they had been taught to do. And so what Jesus has told the guy is, Do what you've always done. Do what mom and dad taught you to do. Do what you've done since you were 13. And the young man eagerly affirmed, I've I've done all of these things since that day. I have taken that very seriously. You can just almost imagine his self-sufficiency, his self-righteousness is surging. He's likely thinking, I knew it. I'm in but look at verse 21, the very first part. It says, Jesus, he loved him. My Bible says he showed love to him. This is significant. This is possibly the most important statement in the story. Everything Jesus did in his interaction with this young man was motivated by his great love for him. This man, as we see, is he is self-sufficient. He is self-righteous. As such, he is in no way ready or even capable of receiving Jesus and the kingdom and everything Jesus offers as a gift given and not as a matter of entitlement, merit, or right. But Jesus loves this man, and he loves him enough to tell him the truth he needs to know. He doesn't affirm him in that. He doesn't tell him how good he is and how what a good job he's done. That would further feed his self-righteousness. That would further feed his self-sufficiency. Rather, Jesus tells him the truth he needs, not the things he wants to hear. Well, what's the truth the man wants to hear? Verse 21 again. One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Now this statement can seem like it's coming out of left field. But it's not. This man overlooked what all self-sufficient and self-righteous people always overlook. God looks at the heart. Now what this means regarding God's law is. God not only looks at the outward action. But also the inward desires. So given what Jesus said there, that the self-sufficient, and the self-righteous, they, 
They focus on not committing the action of murder. But Jesus looks at the heart and he says, don't be angry and sin in your anger. Don't treat people with contempt. Don't condemn people because you don't like them. Well, the self-sufficient and self-righteous focus on not committing the action of adultery. Jesus looks at the heart and says, don't lust after someone in your heart. Well, the self-sufficient and the self-righteous focus on not committing the action of stealing. Jesus looks at the heart and he says, don't be jealous of what others have. While the self-sufficient and the self-righteous focus on not committing the action of giving false testimony, Jesus looks at the heart and says, don't slander others through instant insinuations or partial truth. While the self-sufficient and the self-righteous focus on not doing the action of defrauding others, Jesus looks at the heart and says, don't covet what other people have. In many ways... Jesus, in telling him not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal. He wants this self-sufficient and self-righteous man really in some ways to be as self-sufficient and self-righteous as possible before delivering the blow found in verse 21. One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Now, the money is not the issue. The money is a a symptom of the issue. The issue was the first commandment. To have nothing before the Lord our God. In this man's case, money was a symptom of what he desired more than God. What was he most Devoted to. Was he so devoted to God he he could and would willingly let go of anything and everything God called him to let go of? In this case, all his earthly treasure. What was this man's primary lived priority? Not his stated priority. We all have a stated priority and a lived priority. Those aren't the same thing. What was his lived priority? Was Pleasing God, his primary lived priority, so that he would immediately do anything God called on him to do, like sell what he has, give it to the poor, and follow Jesus. What was this man's greatest treasure? Was God his greatest treasure? Could he lose, or in this case, give away everything he had and be left with only God and the promises of God and still Be content and even joyful. What was the foundation of this man's trust? Did he trust God to do what he had said he would do? And did he trust God enough to this that he could give up everything he had? Be left with just God and God's promise of provision and blessing and say, I have everything I need. I will be okay because God has promised to provide for me. The exact wording of Jesus is interesting. The one thing. One thing he lacked. I think for every unbeliever who refuses to come to Jesus, rejects the gospel. There is one thing that they lack. 
There's one thing keeping them from receiving Jesus, the kingdom of God, and everything else Jesus offers. Now, it varies from person to person. For some, it would be pride. Pride has been called the mother of all sins. It's pregnant with all the rest. Now, pride manifests in several different ways. Self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. The self-sufficient and self-righteous are proud. Make no mistake, they are a proud people. They are too proud to accept the description of people given in God's Word as hopeless, helpless sinners who need a Savior. Perhaps they're sinners, but they aren't helpless. And if they need saving, by golly, they'll save themselves. Or perhaps they won't even accept the idea of being sinners. They may not be perfect. But make no mistake, they're not sinners. Sometimes pride manifests as defiance. Defiant people won't have anyone to rule over them, not even God. No one will tell them what to do. No one will tell them what they can or cannot do. They don't need someone else. They, they are perfectly capable of deciding what's right and what's wrong on their own. They don't need God. They don't need his word. For others, their one thing is just sin. They love their sin. Whatever their sin is, it varies from person to person too. And and no one is going to take their sin from them. No one is going to tell them this sinful action is sinful. And they have to put it away in order to follow Jesus. Jesus called this loving darkness more than light. So unbelievers all have one thing. And that one thing is is keeping them from Jesus, the kingdom of God, and, and everything else Jesus offers. But as I was thinking through the passage, thinking through the sermon, I realized it's not just unbelievers that have one thing keeping them from missing out on what Jesus offers. We who are disciples of Jesus, we who are a part of the kingdom of God, we who have the promises of everything else, often also have one thing that's holding us back from taking our next steps in our relationship and devotion to Jesus. Now, it's different for us. We have Jesus. We have entered the kingdom. We have the promises. But that's not the ending point of life. We enter the kingdom, we receive Jesus into the kingdom, receive the promises, and from that point forward, there's more. There's there's more. From that point forward, there's always more. I mean, none of us could look through everything God's Word says is supposed to be ours as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, and say, I live that reality every moment of every day of my life. We all fall short in, in various ways. And there is typically... One thing that's holding us back. One thing that's, that's keeping us from taking the next step and experiencing the, the new levels with Jesus, the, the new of the kingdom of God, the next things He has for us. And the one thing typically varies for us as well. It could be sin. Disciples of Jesus are redeemed, still struggle with sin. And there are times when we lose the struggle with sin to the point that we begin to love our sin 
And we just don't struggle quite as much as we once did. And that sin that we're loving, that we're holding on to, that we're not struggling against, it is the one thing hindering us from taking our next steps with Jesus. It could be comfort, though. Being a disciple of the Savior who died on the cross and called on His disciples to deny themselves, take up their crosses and follow Him, it really doesn't lend itself to a life of comfort and ease. Yet our flesh loves comfort and ease. And comfort and ease can very easily become the, the one thing hindering us from taking our, our next steps with Jesus. It could be fear. Being a devoted disciple of Jesus requires us to be courageous. Now, I've never counted, but I've been told that there are 365 times in the Bible, one for every day of the year, it says, do not be afraid or do not fear. don't know if that's true. I've never counted. I do know that we're frequently told, do not be afraid. We're frequently told, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed. We're told not to let the fear of man become a snare that keeps us from doing the will of God. We're told to fear God and not man. And if we fear God, we need not fear man. And despite all of what God's word says about not being afraid, not having a spirit of fear. Fear dominates the lives of many people. We live in a fear based culture. So much in our culture is trying to make us afraid all the time. And so it's very easy for fear to become the one thing hindering us from taking our next steps with Jesus. It could be that we're lukewarm and loving. In Revelation 3, Jesus rebukes the church at Laodicea for being lukewarm. They're not hot in their devotion to Him. They aren't cold in their devotion to Him. They're just sort of meh about Jesus and their devotion to Him. Jesus said this attitude about him and what he's done makes him sick. And if there'll come a day where he will literally vomit them out of his mouth. Spew in the King James. What a picture. Despite the warning about lukewarmness and it making Jesus sick, and that he'd spew us out of our mouth for it, lukewarmness reigns in our culture. Not only are are many professing disciples of Jesus lukewarm, but they are lukewarm and loving it. It's not that they're lukewarm and they don't know it. They know they're lukewarm. And they're okay with that. Jesus is just alright with them. The, the, the main question for the lukewarm and loving it crowd is, will this send me to hell or will I still go to heaven? The lukewarm and loving it crowd, they don't want all of Jesus. They don't want the fullness of the Spirit. They don't want everything God has promised. They just don't want to go to hell when they die. And as long as you serve, yes, you believe you're going to heaven, I'm lukewarm and I'm loving it. I'm staying here. And lukewarm and loving it can easily become the one thing hindering us from taking our next steps with Jesus. Another thing could be what I call a Sardis, Sardisian mindset. Another church Jesus rebukes in Revelation 3 is the church at Sardis. Their problem is they have a reputation for being alive, but they're really dead. 
they're resting on their past accomplishments. And they're not even trying to move forward in their devotion to Jesus. It's not uncommon in our day to talk to people who can tell you about what Jesus did for them in the past. Ways he worked in their lives in the past. Ways they they served Jesus in the past. But if you ask them, what's Jesus doing in your life today? How are you serving Jesus today? What's Jesus doing in you and through you and for you today? You get crickets. Because there's nothing. And rather than talk about today, they look back and say, oh, but back then, those days, that, those. Living on past accomplishments. Not present discipleship. Can easily become the one thing that keeps us from moving forward, taking our next steps with Jesus. Another thing that I think is a common one thing in our day is it's just goofy doctrine. God's Word has been given to us as the foundation to what we're to believe about God, Jesus, and Holy Spirit, and salvation, and church, and morality, being a disciple of Jesus, and, and everything else. It is to make us sufficient to do all the things that God wants us to do. And despite this, it is not uncommon to talk to people who profess to be deeply devoted disciples of Jesus and find out they believe all manner of goofy things. And these goofy things have often have no basis in God's Word. Some prophet on social media prophesied it. Or some scholar found a deeper meaning in the Greek and the Hebrew that, that no one in the history of the church ever found before them. Well, they have some novel interpretation of God's Word that no one has ever had before. And in fact, may contradict other parts of God's Word. But, but believing this prophecy or this deeper meaning of the Greek and the Hebrew or this novel interpretation, it makes the person who embraces it kind of feel special. They know what no one else knows. They know what other people don't. But wherever the goofy doctrine comes from, whatever reason they embrace it, it has the same result. Goofy doctrines become the one thing hindering us from taking our next steps with Jesus. And and, and it could be just plain and simple wrong priorities in life. As disciples of a Savior who prayed, not my will but thine be done, and taught us to, to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, we have our example and we have our priorities. We have our example and we have our marching orders on how we're to prioritize our lives. And yet the world, the flesh, and the devil have other priorities for our lives. And it is super easy to let these other priorities dominate our lives. And wrong priorities can easily become the the one thing hindering us from making progress, from, from taking those next steps with Jesus. Look again at verse 21. 
Jesus says, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess, give it to the poor, and you come and you'll have treasures in heaven. Come follow me. Jesus tells the man if he if he sells everything he owns and he follows Jesus, he'll have treasure in heaven. What Jesus is offering him, what he wants the man to know is he is not it's not necessarily he's not necessarily calling him to a monastic life. What he's calling him to is something better. Jesus is offering him something better than earthly riches. He's offering him something better than earthly stuff. He he is offering him heavenly things, eternal things. He wants the guy to think and to realize heavenly treasures are better than earthly treasures. Jesus wants us to realize this as well. What Jesus is offering us in exchange for our one thing is better than our one thing, regardless of what our one thing is. Heavenly treasures are always better than earthly treasures. In Matthew 6, 19 and 20, Jesus gives us several reasons why heavenly treasures are greater than earthly treasures. Our one thing. Earthly treasures are temporary. Moth and rust can destroy them. People can steal them. Earthly treasures simply do not last. They will eventually be lost or used up or taken away or will lose their value. And it's not a matter of of if that happens. It's a matter of when that happens. When will they wear out? When will they lose their value? When will we lose them? When will something take them away from us? Heavenly treasures, on the other hand, are not that way. Cannot be destroyed. They can never be taken from us. They never lose their value. Peter describes heavenly treasures as being imperishable, undefiled. They will not fade away and they're reserved in heaven just for us. No earthly treasure, not even our one thing, can possibly compare with heavenly treasures. Whatever we give up for Jesus is replaced by something better from Jesus. Let me say that again. Whatever we give up for Jesus is replaced by something better from Jesus. Look at verse 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother and father or children or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now. In the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. No matter what we give up for Jesus, Jesus will always outgive us. It is not possible for us to outgive Jesus. We will never outsacrifice Him. We will never outgive Him. Whatever we give up, He replaces with something better, always. And not only do we get heavenly treasures when we give up our one thing, but even more important, we get Jesus. And Jesus is certainly better than our one thing. Jesus is the treasure hidden in a field, which when a man found, he went joyfully home, sold everything he had and bought the field so he could have the treasure. Jesus is the pearl of great price that when the merchant found it, he sold all that he had so that he could buy that one pearl. What we find in Jesus is of greater value than anything we currently possess or can ever acquire. If everything we had had all of our lives 
was given to us today. And everything that we would ever acquire through the end of our lives was given to us today. Jesus is still better than all of that combined. Paul said Jesus was better than everything. He had suffered the loss of all things for the sake of Jesus. And in doing so, he said that Jesus was greater than everything. So much greater than everything he gave up. So much greater than everything that he lost was Jesus. That everything he had ever had before having Jesus, he called it dumb. I mean, can you imagine how great Jesus must be if, if all the treasures of your life, that once you have Him, you look at all the treasures of your life and you wonder, why did I give myself to acquire all of this dung? And yet that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said. We find the same thing when we give up our one thing for Jesus. Once we have Him, once we know Him, we will see that what we were clinging to was dumb, rubbish, nothing in comparison to Jesus. Jesus met this young man at the point of rebellion. The point of rebellion wasn't the money. The point of rebellion was he had something before God. And Jesus always meets us sooner or later. At the point of our rebellion. Sooner or later he meets us at the point of our rebellion. And he does what he does to this man. He demands a surrender. He was rebelling against God by having these things ahead of God. Surrender them, Jesus says. And he's clear about it. There's no doubt about what he means. Sell what you possess. Give it to the poor. You don't keep any of it. Follow me. And now the man is brought to a place of a decision. What will he do with his one thing? Verse 22. But he was deeply dismayed by these words. And he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. To the rich young ruler, what Jesus demanded was just too much. And so he left he left with his wealth, but he left without Jesus. He left without the kingdom and he left without everything Jesus offered him. Something to, to see. And I always want to point to that because this is so important. Jesus let him go. Do you see that? Jesus didn't negotiate with him. He didn't say, well, well, how about you give 10% of it or, or 30%? How about we, what's a number you can accept and you give that and then you come follow me? Jesus didn't lower his demand. He didn't alter what he said. Not a jot, not a tittle. He just let the man go. And his one thing kept him from receiving Jesus the kingdom of God and everything else Jesus offered. The lesson for us is clear. One thing can often stand 
between us and receiving Jesus, the kingdom, and everything else Jesus offers. So what about us today? What is the one thing Jesus is pressing on you about this morning? Jesus is pressing on you about one thing. You too have a choice to make. You can lay down your one thing. And you can receive Jesus, the kingdom, and everything else Jesus offers. Or you can cling to your one thing. You can leave here with your one thing. And you'll leave here without Jesus, the kingdom, and everything else Jesus offers. We can say Jesus is better and I want Jesus and let it go. Or we can say the demand is too high and we keep it. But whatever our one thing is, we will make a decision about it today. We will choose whether or not to lay our one thing down and receive Jesus. Or we will choose to hold on to our one thing and reject Jesus. There is... No middle ground. There's no other choice. We're all brought to the place of a decision today. And I want to be clear with you. If you choose to hold on to your one thing. And leave here without Jesus. He will let you go. Jesus is Lord. He is not going to renegotiate a different deal. He's not going to go on to something else. He's not going to lower his demands as a way of compromise. Jesus will let you go. Because you chose other things rather than him. One last thing. The young man was deeply dismayed. He went away grieving. He he went away sad. This has been a challenging message to be sure. Can I say to you today, if you go away sad, it's because you've held on to your one thing. The people who came to Jesus and received Jesus, they left rejoicing. The message today isn't what's going to make us sad. The content of the message isn't what's going to make us sad. What will make us sad as we leave here today is that we reject Jesus and hold on to our one thing. And if we leave a message that's talked about the greatness and the glory of Christ sad, we must wonder why we're sad that Jesus is so great. And isn't it because we don't think Jesus is that great? Isn't it because we think our one thing is greater? That one thing will always leave us sad. That one thing will always let us down. And I could get into examples. I'll just say this. Think back over your life. How many times have you had one thing you thought this is the key to happiness? This is the key to life. This is the key to joy. How did it do in the long run? How did that relationship turn out? How did the job go? How did the toy last? Didn't they always let you down at the end? They did. And whatever your one thing is today, it'll let you down again. But Jesus won't. What are you going to decide today? Let's stand.
And want to give us a time to respond. I want you to think in this moment, what is the one thing standing between you and your next steps with Jesus? What is the one thing standing between you and Jesus, the kingdom, everything Jesus offers? Would you get it in your mind and have it clearly there? And I'm going to pray in just a moment and you're going to be able to come forward and make a choice. Lay your one thing on the altar and walk out with Jesus or cling to your one thing and walk out without Jesus. At the same time, I would say, even if we haven't been pressed on about something specific, there are next steps. I've been praying since I prepared this message for Jesus to show me what is my one thing. I don't want anything to stand between me and him. I want to do what he wants me to do no matter what that is. So I'm I'm going to be praying for him to show me what my one thing is. I, I want to know because I don't want anything between me and Jesus, me and the kingdom, me and everything he offers. So maybe there's not something specific pressing on you. Then you cry out, show me my one thing. I want to take my next steps with you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace and goodness. Thank you for your word that guides us. Thank you for Jesus who is better than anything we have and anything we could get and everything we've ever had combined. Let us today value Jesus as he's worthy. Let us see him as the pearl of great price, the treasure in the field, and know that everything else in comparison to him, it is just clinging to dung rather than clinging to Christ. And let us lay our one thing down, take our next steps with Jesus, and let today be the beginning of days for us that we could look back in years to come and say, July 30th, 2023, that was the day things changed. Man, I began to move forward in my relationship with Christ in ways I'd never done before. Do it because it's your will. Do it because you're good. Do it for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.